At this point in time, we will jump into the sermon, and um, let me just say this. Earlier, we read this big chunk of Scripture, John chapter 15. Some of you were probably wondering, wow, that was really long. Why did we do that? I'm actually going to preach on that passage of Scripture today, and I chose it on purpose um, as kind of an end of the spring sermon because I really think there's some interesting things in there that I'd like for us to take away. So let me, uh, let me just start with a question here. What would you do? What would you do if you knew that today was your last day on earth? Let me ask that one more time. Let it sink in. What would you do if you knew that today was your last day on earth? Probably what most of us would do is we would be very intentional about this last day. We would surround ourselves with very close friends and very close family. We might eat, you know, a last meal that means everything to us. Um, again, we, who knows what we might do. But one of the things I think I would have done, I thought about this because, you know, I was diagnosed with cancer about a year ago, and I thought, if I have a last day that is before me, who am I going to be with? And I thought, well, I'm going to spend that day with a few friends, but I'm going to definitely spend that day with Krista, and I'm going to spend it with the kiddos. And I'm going to make sure not just to spend it with them in sort of a frivolous way, but I'm going to communicate some real truths to them, some things that I want them to remember after I'm gone. Well, here in John chapter 15, we have Jesus last night with his disciples. Actually, from chapters 13 through 17, it's called the Upper Room Discourse. It's the last night with Jesus, and he surrounds himself with these guys who have given three years of their lives to him, and he prays with them, but he also gives them a charge. And it's that charge uh, that we see recorded in John chapter 15. John, the author of this gospel, was there that night, and he recorded the words of Jesus in John chapter 15. Now, let's just go ahead and take a moment and let's pray, and then we'll begin. Father, I thank you for the words of Scripture. I thank you, Father, that we had eyewitnesses um, to the majesty of your son, Jesus. Father, I thank you that we had um, people that were there, uh, like John, who were able to record the words of your son on the last night of his life. And so, Father, I pray that uh, this morning that we too might take seriously and hear the words of this charge that Jesus gave to his disciples and that we might receive that same charge ourselves. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen. Show me a good loser and I'll show you a loser. Let me say that one more time. Show me a good loser and I'll show you a loser. These are the words that I would use uh, every uh, game with my U10 soccer team. Just kidding, I never did that. Anyway, that would be terrible. Anyway, but uh, they were words that my Uncle Jerry used to say all the time. Uncle Jerry uh, was my great uncle. He's actually passed away now, probably about 10 or 15 years ago. And uh, he was just this funny guy. He was so funny. He was very wealthy. And he loved me a ton. And that was one of his little favorite sayings, is show me a good loser, I'll show you a loser. And uh, but he took me to Falcons games, and he took me to college football games. He took me to Mexico on a fishing trip. We caught marlin and all sorts of wonderful stuff. He was a really neat guy. And uh, he was not a believer, however. But one of the things that I learned from my Uncle Jerry is how to live a life that was aligned with certain priorities. Now, let me unpack that a little bit. When Uncle Jerry was in college, he made up his mind. He said, when I was back in college, I determined that I wanted to be a millionaire one day. Now, again, you know, he just passed away 15 years ago, and so he might have been making this uh, um, goal maybe back in the 50s, 60s. He said, I want to be a millionaire. And so what he did is over the course of his life, he really lived his life according with a series of, or according to a series of priorities. And sure enough, you know, probably by the time he was in his mid-40s, he met that goal of becoming a millionaire. The only problem was that in order to meet that goal, 
He had to live according to some priorities, but those priorities didn't include family, right? And so I did his funeral, again, 15, 20 years ago now, and at his funeral, he had three children. None of his three children were there. He had a series of ex-wives. None of them were there as well. There were a handful of people in the room. But again, he lived his life according to his priorities, and he was successful in accomplishing his goal. Now, you're probably wondering why in the world I might use Uncle Jerry as an example this morning. But the reality is, is that I think what Jesus is doing here is I think Jesus is recommending a series of priorities to us. Now, let me pause for a second. Let me ask you this. What do you think your priorities are? Like if you had to sort of list them in order of most important to least important, what might your uh, priorities be? Now, there's a couple different ways that you might answer or at least discover the answer to that question. One of the ways you might answer that question is you might simply tell us or tell me what your priorities are. For a lot of us in this room, it might be something like faith and then family and then work maybe, or it might be something else. It might be self-care, others care, and then care for the world. There's any number of ways you might answer to that question. Um, the truth is probably 97% of the people in this room actually don't have a ready answer to that question. What are your priorities? One of the ways in which you might determine what your priorities are would actually be by looking at your bank account, your uh, maybe credit card statement. Maybe you would look at your internet history. Um, it's quite possible that if you did that, what you would find is that your priorities or those priorities that govern your life are really things like you know, entertainment, self-care, and maybe work or school in that order. And that's the thing that's important here is the order. St. Augustine was um, a, a founding father, or at least a father of Christianity, and he first put forth a particular idea, and the idea was around this sort of concept of disordered love. One of his life's works was to discover why people lived lives of discontentment and joylessness, okay? So if you are living a life of discontentment or joylessness, St. Augustine has something to say to you in a minute. His answer was disordered loves. Augustine taught that people are most fundamentally shaped not as much by what they believe or what they say they think uh, or even what they do, but they're shaped by what they love, right? So that's an interesting idea. We're shaped by what we love. He wrote this. He said, when people ask whether somebody is a good person, we are not asking what he believes or hopes for, but what he loves. He also observed that the heart's loves have a particular order to them and that often we love less important things more, and we love more important things less. Augustine goes on to say about a good person, he said, a good person is also a person who has rightly ordered his love so that he does not love what is wrong to love or fail to love what should be loved or love too much what should be loved less or love too little what should be loved more. Ultimately, his point was that unhappiness and disorder of our lives is caused by the disorder of our loves. Let me say that one more time. The disorder of our lives is caused by the disorder of our loves. And I would argue that disordered loves, or for the sake of this sermon, disordered priorities, uh, will ultimately lead you to chaos. That disordered priorities will ultimately lead you to isolation and to loneliness. In John chapter 15, Jesus spends this last night of his life telling the disciples what their loves should actually be and in what order they should be arranged. And for the sake of this sermon, I'll call these Jesus' three priorities. 
Now, I'm going to read his first priority. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10, and rather than telling you what it is, I'm going to ask you to pay attention to these 10 verses. There's a word that's going to echo 11 times over the course of these verses, so listen for that key word, and it'll give you a clue, beginning in verse 1. Again, Jesus is speaking to the disciples, knowing he's about ready to go to the cross. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing." If you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. So what is Jesus' first priority? It's to remain in him, to remain in him. If you were counting or if you were able to count, you'd see that Jesus uses the word remain 11 times in those 10 verses. If you'd been in the room that night listening, you would have heard Jesus use the Greek word meno, 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 remain, remain, remain. The word meno can be defined as to abide or to dwell or to remain, but the idea is to live somewhere. The idea is to find your home. The idea is to set up shop, to put down roots, to dwell in him. Jesus says to the disciples, your first priority is to remain in me. The question I think most of us would be asking is, well, what does that mean? How do we do that? And if you were to ask any, any Christian, random Christian, how to remain in Jesus, they would almost in, uh, definitely answer with some combination of the following. They would say, well, you pray, you read your Bible, and you go to church. And frankly, each of those are true, but they're not what Jesus says here when he's talking to the disciples. What Jesus does is he mentions four different things. He says this, remaining in me means holding on to my words, holding on to my words. That's verse 7. Jesus says, keeping my commands. That's verse 10. He says that remaining in him entails enduring suffering. That's verses 1 and 2. And then finally, remaining in him looks like bearing fruit. That's verse 5. Now, I'm going to focus for just a moment on those last two points on suffering and bearing fruit. If you notice, Jesus begins this discourse or this charge with his disciples with the metaphor of a garden. And within the garden is a vine, and within the garden is a gardener. The vine, of course, is Jesus. The gardener is God the Father. And we, or the disciples at this point, are the branches that are sprouting off of that vine. And then Jesus tells them in verse 2, he says this, every branch that does bear fruit. So let's say you're alive, you're connected to the vine. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. There's clearly a connection in Jesus' words here between bearing fruit and pruning 
that comes from the hand of God the gardener. That's where that pruning comes from, and it bears fruit. When I was in high school, there was a man who would come and speak at our church every now and then. His name's Robertson McQuilkin. He was the president of Columbia International University, and he uh, is relatively well-known for uh, stepping down from his position at Columbia International to take care of his wife uh, after she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. It's a great story that maybe you've heard me tell before. But he said that uh, when I heard him again when he was preaching at our church, again, I probably was 15 or 16, and I remember him telling the story of when they got the job at Columbia, he was the president, and they moved to one of those little houses that was built in 1953 in his little ranch house with uh, three bedrooms and two bathrooms, and um, anyway, just this little home. And he said that his wife Muriel was so excited about this home, and she wanted to decorate it and make it beautiful. And uh, he said that one of the things that she decided is she didn't want to have any, um, any sort of biological trash in the house because she didn't want to attract bugs into the home. And so she asked um, Robertson to, to dig a hole out back and to make a compost pile. And so he said over the course of the first year or two, they would fill up this compost pile with banana peels and you know cracked eggs and rotten cantaloupes and peach pits and all sorts of stuff they would throw back there. And he said after they'd been living there a couple of years, he went out and he noticed that there was a little tree growing out of the compost tree uh, pit. And he looked at the leaves and he realized it was a little peach tree. And so I was like, oh, this is really a great opportunity. He said, I've got a peach tree right here. I can take care of this little thing. We can have peaches. And so he said he got a little book. And in the little book, it talked about how to take care of peaches. And he said, you know, in years one through three, you need to prune off 75% of the branches. And he said he looked at this little tree, and he's like, I can't do that. It will kill it. So he said he pruned off about a third of the branches. And he said, you know, uh, the summer went by, and the fall went by, and winter rolled around, and the next spring and summer came. And he said that basically this little peach tree had these little wrinkly, you know, things that didn't look at all like peaches on them. And so he's like, well, that was a failure. And so he got the book out. The book said prune off, you know, three-fourths of the branches. He's like, that just seems like too much. So he said, I'll prune off half of them. So he pruned off half the branches. Again, you know, summer and uh, fall and winter, et cetera, et cetera. He went out. He said the next time, next year in the summer when he was hoping to find peaches, he went out there, and he said they were a little bigger this time, but not much better. And so he said, I looked at the book. The book said prune off three-fourths of the branches. And he said, I pruned off, you know, almost all the branches. And he said, it looked like Charlie Brown's Christmas tree. It's like, I thought I was going to die. And he said, but again, that same cycle went by, and he said, the next summer I went out, and he said, we actually had peaches that were on this peach tree. He said, they were so big and so juicy that you had to sit in the bathtub to eat them. And uh, the idea, of course, in this little illustration is that I've never been a peach tree, but I would assume that being pruned is painful. And I know that being pruned bears fruit. It seems as though Jesus is telling us here that remaining in him will entail suffering that then bears fruit in our lives, right? He says, if you're going to remain in me, there's going to be suffering, but that suffering is going to create something new in you. C.S. Lewis agrees. He says this, I suggest to you that it's because God loves us that he gives us the gift of suffering. The blows of his chisel, which hurt us so much, are what make us perfect. If we don't understand that our suffering has a purpose and that it actually comes mysteriously from the hand of God, the gardener, then we'll be very quickly tempted to give up. Right after being diagnosed with cancer, and maybe it was, maybe it was before I even had surgery, and again, you don't know what the extent of the cancer is going to be, how serious it is, but I remember sitting in front of our fireplace, and I remember reading a, a Bible study that I was doing at the time, and, and 
in the Bible study, it talked about being part of God's larger story. And I just remember thinking as I sat there in front of the fireplace and kind of thinking like, all right, I get to play my part in this larger story. And if what you need for me to play my part is to be made different than I am, better than I am, to be made somehow more perfect than I'm up for it, right? Whatever you need me to do. And part of that suffering was exactly what God needed for me to do. It's actually a gift from God by which he allows us to bear fruit, and in the words of C.S. Lewis, to begin this process of being made perfect. So our first priority is to remain in him, says Jesus, and it's remembering his words, and it's obeying him, but it's enduring suffering, and it's bearing fruit. What's the second priority? The second priority is found in verses 12 through 17, and again, I'll just ask you to listen to what you think the key theme is, and then I'll tell you if you're right. Beginning in verse 12, again, Jesus speaking to the disciples, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in the name of my father, uh, the father will give you. This is my command, love each other. So in the same way that Jesus' first priority was very clear to remain in him, his second priority is equally clear. It's to love one another. And again, he's talking in the context here of the early church, this little group of believers, these people who have given their lives to him. And Jesus says, love one another. Now, as you know, there are several different words that are used for love in Greek. There's a word for romantic love. There's a word for familial love, and there's a word for the type of love that exists in friendship. The love that Jesus speaks of here is the fourth type of love. It's agape. Many of you are familiar with this term. But agape love is marked more by action than by emotion. It chooses the well-being of another even at great cost to oneself. Agape love is by definition sacrificial. Jesus hints at it in verse 13 when he's talking to the disciples and about their willingness to lay down their lives for one another. Other verses throughout Scripture emphasize this agape love. Ephesians 2, God being rich in mercy because of the great love, the great agape with which he agaped us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Romans 5, 8 But God demonstrates his own agape for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. It was sacrificial. It was at great cost to God. Now, I would argue that nothing says agape like a 1990 Bruce Willis movie. I hope we can all agree on that. In the movie Armageddon, many of you remember the story. There's an asteroid that's hurtling towards Earth, and Earth is about to be destroyed And so the U.S. government goes and finds Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck, who are these miners, and basically what they say is the only way to save Earth is if we fly you up to this giant asteroid in a space shuttle with a nuclear bomb, and then you have to drill a hole into the middle of the asteroid, and then you take off and you remotely detonate the nuclear bomb, and hopefully what happens is it splits in half and goes sort of on either side of the Earth and the world is saved, right? And so if you haven't seen the movie, let me just tell you what happens. I'm going to ruin it for you. 
So they go up there, they drill the hole, they put the nuclear bomb in, and uh, they realize that the remote detonator is broken. And so one of them is going to have to stay behind. And so the Bruce Willis character tricks the Affleck character into getting on the spaceship, and he sends them off back home. And he climbs over to where the nuclear bomb is, and he prepares uh, to detonate it. But before he does so, he's able to have a video phone call with his daughter, Liv Tyler, who's played there on the right. And um, he tells her what he's going to have to do. And he says, I'm going to have to detonate this. It's the only way to save you. It's the only way to save Earth. And so with tears streaming down her cheeks, Liv Tyler says to her father, he says, Every, she says, everything good I have inside of me, I have from you. I love you so much. I'm so proud of you. To which Bruce Willis responds, there won't be anything else to be afraid of soon. He says, I love you, Grace. And he presses the detonator. Suddenly the screen fills with a racing stream of images as seen through the love of a father's eyes. They go back in time to the sunny day where he's pushing his daughter, a laughing little girl in the swing. And then we see a blur of images reflecting the glorious and grainy moments of a miraculous human life. We see a moment out in the future where Grace is dressed as a bride on a wedding day that her father will miss. And then the asteroid erupts in a blinding explosion. It fractures in two, and the two halves careen clear of Earth. And people from India celebrate all the way to London. But of course, Grace is weeping. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. What if, what if, what if the church actually loved one another like Jesus loved us? What if that happened? What if we laid down our lives for one another all the time? What if we truly bore one another's burdens in the church? I'm guessing that if we lived life that way, that the church would be incredibly attractive to the outside world. That leads us to our third point. Jesus' first priority is that we remain in him, understood. His second priority is that we love one another. His third priority, however, is that we testify about him. Look at verses 26 and 27. When the advocate comes, this is the Holy Spirit. When the advocate comes, whom I send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, and you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. So let me just recap here. Remaining in Jesus actually sounds okay to us, right? We get that. Maybe the suffering part isn't so great, but the concept definitely makes sense. Loving our brothers and sisters in Christ also sounds good. Maybe the sacrificial part moves us a little further down the continuum than we are comfortable with. But here we find in Jesus' third priority this idea of testifying about him, something that is particularly uncomfortable to us in our current cultural moment. Postmodernity has rejected meta narratives such as religion, even science, bringing doubt even onto something like math. The claim is that each of those is a social construct put into place by powerful people in order to oppress those without power. And as a result of this ideology, much of our culture feels very uncomfortable around people who put forth any form 
of all-encompassing truth claim. And I'm just going to go ahead and tell you that testifying about Jesus definitely fits into that category. I'm just going to go ahead and warn you. It actually sometimes feels wrong to us to tell people about Jesus. I would also hear pause and say that when we call ourselves Christians, we actually are making a choice to follow Jesus, not to follow culture. If you didn't know better, you might assume that the culture the disciples were living in would have been way more receptive to the message about Jesus, but if you know anything about Scripture, it wasn't at all. In our culture, you might be seen as brutish or boorish for sharing the gospel, telling people about Jesus, but in Jesus' day, you ran a very good chance of getting killed for telling people about him. In fact, the word used for testify in both verse 26 and 27 here is martyreo. It's the word uh, from which the English word martyr is derived. It means to bear witness or to give testimony regarding something that someone has seen or experienced. And testifying about Jesus became so closely linked with being killed that the word martyr now means to die for doing so. Stephen was stoned to death for talking about Jesus. History records that Peter was crucified by the Roman emperor Nero, and Paul was beheaded under him as well. Thomas is rumored to have been killed in India and Philip in northern Africa. The list of those who died for testifying about Jesus goes on and on and on throughout church history. The only apostle believed to have died of old age was John, the author of this very passage we're reading today. But history still records that Domitian, uh, the emperor Domitian, had him exiled on the Isle of Patmos for speaking of Jesus. All of them suffered greatly for testifying about Jesus. Thankfully, we don't live in that world. Someone might be uncomfortable with me talking about Jesus, but I'm not really risking my life to do so. One massively important takeaway from verse 26 is also that we are not alone when we testify about Jesus. We're not on our own. We're not even the most important piece of the process. Jesus makes it clear that the Holy Spirit is testifying himself to who Jesus is. He's a much better evangelist than you are. In fact, in John 3, uh, while talking to Nicodemus, Jesus makes it clear that if people do accept him, it's precisely because of the Holy Spirit's work in their hearts and their lives. Our job is simply to tell, how, tell people how Jesus has changed our lives. It's up to the Holy Spirit to change their hearts. Now, let me just give you one action item in relation to this last point today. Everybody can do it. It's very easy. I would like, for those of you in the room who are willing to, to make a list of three people to begin praying for. Just make a list of three people to begin praying for. Pray that God would send his Holy Spirit to work in their hearts. And pray that God would give you a clear opportunity for you to tell each of them about Jesus. I think God might very well answer those prayers. I would love it if you would text me and let me know when he does. I would love to celebrate that together. Now let me wrap up this way. It'd be very easy to take these three priorities, remain in him, love the brothers, testify about him, and to use those as a checklist whereby we go, all right, I am saved. I have done what is required of me. I'm good. Or it'd be very easy to view those three things and to put them to a long list of other things you're already working on. If you did either of those, or if you do either of those two things, it's likely 
that both will become overwhelming to you. In fact, I would argue they will become overwhelming to you if you look at them that way. I think Jesus may have known that. But look at what Jesus says in verse 11 to the disciples about why he gives them these priorities. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Let's say that one more time. Jesus says, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. When we surrender our hearts, our minds, and our entire lives to Jesus, we actually experience joy, right? And Jesus, when he sees us living these lives of satisfaction, he experiences joy over you, over us. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your son, Jesus, and I thank you that he came into this world in order to be a light. And that by the light of Jesus, Father, we have seen you for who you are, that you're a good father, and that you long for us to come home. Father, I thank you that by the light that Jesus shone, we could see ourselves, and we could see that we're like the younger brother and the older brother who are either trying to run from you or to bribe you. And Father, I pray that we would be neither of those young, the young brother or the old brother, but Father, I pray that we would be people who realize that we are not loved because of what we do, but rather we can do what you call us to do because we are loved, because we are adopted as daughters and sons of God. I pray that we would know deeply that when we trust in your son Jesus for our salvation, that we're forgiven. But also, Father, that at that moment, there's nothing we can do to make you love us any more or any less than you do right now, simply because of your son Jesus. In his name we pray.